Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to another installment of History Hack. We have with us today, we're thrilled, we've got Simon Verdigan with us, who is basically the Indiana Jones of Belgium. Um, not to bill him too highly. Beth, why is he the Indiana Jones of Belgium? He just is, isn't he? That's just his title, Chief Archaeologist of all of Belgium. Yep. Um, yeah. So Simon is a archaeologist, conflict archaeologist. Um, his most current project, um, Skylarks, that he set up recently is a process that he's hoping will help to identify um, those who have been recovered in Belgium over the last 30 years from the First World War. And he's obviously well known doing his archaeology across the Ypres salient and finding all of the really, really good stuff. Stuff. Oh, stuff. <laughs> oh. Hi, Simon. Hi, all. Thank you for having me. How are you basking in your new celebrity status after giving that talk at the beginning of the week? <laughs> Uncomfortable. <laughs> <laughs> was a little bit creepy in some places, wasn't it? <laughs> oh, just a little. Yeah. And Lucky's here as well. You're right, Lucky. Yeah, I'm here. I'm just going to grill Simon further about um, the discovery of one of my rugby club players. Uh, that's that's what mainly what I'm here for. Excellent, because uh, we are here. We are going to talk about Simon's work looking at the missing. Basically, when someone finds someone on the Western Front, remains of a soldier, Simon gets a phone call and then he puts on his superhero outfit and he goes out and he exhumes them. And it's his job to try and give back these remains, give them back their identity. Simon, how long have you been doing this? Um, almost 10 years now, Um my first uh, major archaeological dig on the Western Front was in 2012 in Messines. Um, and ever since, I've yeah, done almost nothing else but First World War excavations. It's what um, you wanted to get into, isn't it? Yeah, uh, I always wanted to do something with the First World War. I studied history first. I couldn't really find my way in there. Uh, so I decided to do... Uh, archaeology with the so um but just one purpose and it was to get into a uh, first world war archaeology so simon obviously you've just briefly touched on there your your background and how you got into archaeology and the fact that you do recover remains and you're part of the ex exhumation process um how is that work actually done can you just take us through the process of of how that happens yeah um, there are two kinds of um uh, excavations two types so 
there are the regular excavations. So um, that's when um, building or construction works are planned and then uh, archaeological teams have to come in. And when that's on the First World War battlefield, there's always a chance of finding human remains. And then um, the recovery will be part of the bigger excavation going on on that uh, area and, or that field or that site. Um, so in that case, um, uh, the team is already present um, and they do um, the steps that I will explain a bit later. Uh, the other case is when it's a chance find. So that can be a farmer that's plowing, metal detectorist that's going over a field. Uh, if there's construction or, or uh, work going on in a garden or in a smaller area that is not um, where archaeology was not um, necessary or because the area was too small or whatever reason it was. And then uh, there's um, everybody is obligated to to um, you know, call the police that they found the human remains and then um, the police contacts the local archaeologists and then uh, our team is called in to do the actual recovery. Um, so when we are uh, going out uh, or when we are doing a recovery, if it is in a chance find or on an archaeological excavation, it usually takes us one to two days per body uh, with a team of two archaeologists and a physical anthropologist. Um, so we, we, we open up uh, the area so that we know in what kind of context he's situated, if it is in a bomb crater, a trench, field grave, uh, uh, whatever possible. Sometimes he's just uh, scattered remains on, on the surface or just below the surface. Um, then we, op uh, we, we clean the remains in situ so, we, so that we have an idea of uh, if it's one individual or, or multiple individuals um, and how he's... Uh, Positioned, uh, if he's buried properly, or if he's he just dropped where he he was killed, and he's still in that same position. Uh, and then we we do our recording, so that means we do uh, a lot of photography, uh, regular photography, archaeological photography with uh, scale bars and and north arrows, but also photography for three D models, um, so that we can make a three D model out of it, and also. Uh, an orthophoto, um, an orthophoto, so that's a photo that you can see uh, straight down, which fits in our GIS program, uh, so that we know the exact location of, of the individual and the, the, the find location. And then uh, when all that is done, the physical anthropologist makes his uh, or her notes. Um, she looks at the stuff she needs to know. And then we start the actual recovery. So that means that we, um, we lift uh, piece by piece artifacts but also the remains and each uh, each item is um, recorded with a GPS uh, so we that we always know where is uh, where what was found um, even the smallest button uh, or uh, an example um, um, stripes on the shoulder or uh, on a on the bottom of a sleeve can mean something completely different so you have to know where it's found to in the later process of identification, uh, that can make a difference in uh, narrowing down the list of the the, the, the person in, in, in situ. Um, so when uh, when that is done, uh, everything is taken to um, to our depot, uh, and there everything is uh, cleaned. So the human remains are washed and dried so that they can be studied by the physical anthropologist uh, in in greater detail. Uh, so they look at uh, stature, uh, age, 
um, yeah, sex, but most cases that's that's clear, of course, in our uh, first world war recoveries. But also uh, cause of death, if that's possible, um, maybe some um, trauma that happened before or diseases that he might have had during his life. Um, so that's all kind of uh, data that they, they assemble based on just uh, the skeletal remains. And we, uh, we look at the artifacts themselves. So the artifacts get also cleaned and uh, we make an inventory of uh, piece, uh, each piece. Uh, we make photographs of it and then that will all be um, get together in, in, a, in a first uh, report that we together with the remains and the, uh, the artifacts give back to the police. And then it's the police that gives it to um, the Belgian Wargrave Commission and they then hand it over to the relevant uh, authorities of the nation uh, where the soldier is uh, origin from. You've been doing this a while. I mean, do you, do you remember the first body you found? Uh, yeah, uh, that was the first excavation in 2012 um, in the scenes. Um, Has the process changed much in that time? Quite a bit, yeah. Um, back then, we didn't have the time to take the remains and the artifacts back to the office. So we, we just had the time to um, to open up the area and clean the remains in situ and have an idea of, of the context and do our photographs there. But then the police came in and they took everything with them, remains and artifacts. So uh, the only data that we were able to, to gather was what we had at that moment. Um, of course, all the study of those items and the remains in that time were done afterwards by, um, by the Commonwealth Wargrave Commission or, or other authorities. Um, but we, from an archaeological perspective, always lacked some kind of information that we now have the opportunity to, uh, to gather when we, we are back at the offices. How, how, I mean, how did it feel? I mean, if it's, if it's your first time, I, I, I guess, I mean, speaking from Battlefield Guide perspective, I, you know, I walk around places like, like Tyne Car and I, I, I sometimes need to check myself because I, I feel um, so comfortable at places like that. I almost sort of forget where mm -hmm. I am from time to time. And that, maybe that comes with time. But the first time you go there, surely you're here. And I, I, I feel like maybe it's like that, uncovering your first set of human remains but how is it it was um, my the very first that i saw was during an internship um but that was just like from a distance because we were not as students were not allowed to to be part of that process so we we, we could have a look and and watched it so in my opinion uh, that wasn't the first bodies that that i recovered but the one i i did as, as, an, as an archaeologist, as a responsible like field uh, archaeologist, as a was my excavation, and and I, yeah, that's that's something I will always remember. Um, I remember because it was um, Paul Reed and Peter Doyle were there, um, and because uh, they were following us for the, um, the 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 TV program on Channel Four. Um, I remember that the moment I noticed that we had human remains, I ran off to them to, to say that, that we actually found it. And the whole process from that point on, the, the, the discovery and the, the, 
the opening up of the context and, and cleaning the remains. It's yeah, it's it's like yesterday. Did you find any identifying features on him? He was uh, from the New, Ze uh, New Zealand Rifle Brigade, so okay. he had his shoulder tattles. Um, he did have like um, um, a mouthpiece for like some extra teeth that he he lost, and there was one gold teeth within that piece. So we hoped that that would be something oh, might, that would yeah. lead to his identification, but unfortunately, they, they got stuck somewhere in a in a list that was still too too long. So we never knew. So he's he's buried there at the Messine Ridge um, Commonwealth um, Cemetery um, as an unknown uh, New Zealand soldier from the Rifle Brigade. Um, so there was was his stories and about. It's unfortunately that's one of many cases because identification is very hard um, but at least he's uh, with his mates in in the cemetery and no longer uh, somewhere out there so that's already yeah. a satisfactory um, end of, of the story how, how many how many soldiers have you found now um about 200 at the moment i think yeah most of them i still remember as good as the first one because it's, yeah, it's something that you take home every time. And, and how many have you been able to identify? Um, only four, I'm afraid. Four. Okay. And, and one of them is, is you know, my guy from, from the rugby club uh, he was as well. The, he was the first, yeah. So I'll definitely never uh, forget him. Yeah, I mean, for for those who haven't heard me boring on about the story, um, never mind <laughs> Simon being interesting about it. Um, uh, this was a player who came from New Zealand, uh, actually um, came up to England on an, on an army scholarship, really talented athlete, great sportsman, and and uh, came to the best rugby club in the world, uh, which is Blackheath uh, Rugby Club in, in South East London, uh, where he played for a short time before uh, joining his regiment, uh, which was the Warwickshire. Uh, regiment and um, and he was killed at Second Ypres in May 1915. Um, and so yeah, it was quite exciting for me as a kind of military historian attached to Blackheath Rugby Club when news of Simon's discovery um, was well became apparent. Uh, anyway, so what what was that process like? Um, he was found during a, a large scale excavation in 2016. Um, we um, were uh, advancing on a on a big uh, gas pipeline that had to be uh, put in place near uh, Langemark. So we did a first, I think, 16 kilometers in 2014, 2015. Um, and then that was a second, like a side branch that ran from um, Langemark all the way down to um, Mousetrap Farm. So it was actually there that we started and going all the way up north, which was about eight kilometers. And we knew we, we had to go to the field um, that was from Oblong, uh, Oblong Farm uh, and the road from Saint-Jean to Saint-Julien. So where all the counterattacks in, in April 1915 took place. So first the Canadians and then later the 10 Brigade. Um, so we knew there was a quite a large um or big chance that we would find human remains on that field. Um, but Kitchener's Wood is mainly linked to the Canadians and their heavy losses. And the 10 Brigade is kind of a more or less, if I can say, forgotten 
counterattack or well less well known as as the Canadians. So everybody was warning us watch out for bodies and and very likely there'll be Canadians. And I think in the first stretch was that was about 300 meters. Uh, 13 meters, 15 meters wide. Uh, we discovered 15 bodies, um, of whom one German and all the others, I think two were just scattered remains that we couldn't link to a nationality, and all the others were Commonwealth uh, troops. So we, we had some, you know, like GS buttons and, and typical um, Commonwealth equipment, um, webbing stuff, and that. Uh, but no signs of Canadian troops. Um, hmm. So we were kind of in the doubt, what period are we looking at? Um, uh, that was a doubt until we, we found that one bomb crater where um, Captain Walker was in. Uh, of course, at that moment, we didn't know uh, who we were looking at. But the first thing that we discovered, because he was kind of still sitting on the edge of the bomb crater, was his 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 skull, and he still had his cap on, with a Warwickshire badge. So that was the first thing that we discovered. So that immediately took us that to that 25th of April 1915. Um, and when we we opened up the entire bomb crater, there was another guy, uh, also Warwickshire, but uh, a regular soldier, lying on top of him, and um. Captain Walker, of course, it was quite uh, early in the process. We, we, we found out that he was a, an officer based on his buttons and his color uh, insignia and some of the other uh, equipment that he had with him. Um, so that narrowed down the list immediately from, I think, because at the, at the beginning they had 190 or something missing for just that, that one day. So in the beginning, we, we, yeah, we thought that it was going to be nothing again until it was an officer, then the list narrowed down to, I think, 11. Um, and then at some point when we were uh, lifting all the, the artifacts, we found a medallion with some initials uh, like en engraved in it. But it was in, a, in some kind of a handwriting that we couldn't, make out what it was at that moment and I, I still remember I was one of those evenings at home looking through files with that I could find online on, on officers from the Warwickshire's. I think it was, I don't recall which file it was exactly what source but it was signed on the bottom with Henry John Innes Walker and uh, the capitals were exactly the same as on the um, medallion. So next morning I went to, to the, the find box and I had an, another look and then I could I like decipher that it was exactly those initials oh, at that, that moment we knew. Lockie, did you know that about him sitting there with his hat on still? No, I didn't. I mean, from, from the counts that I read, I, 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 he had a nasty abdominal wound. I think he was last seen kind of in a in a shell crater, mm -hmm. kind of you know trying to trying to look after this horrible wound that he'd got. So it, it sounded awful, like it sounded more like one of the really nasty um, mm -hmm. deaths. But then, but then not seen again. Um, uh, posted missing, presumed killed uh, after the war. Um, recorded on the Menning Gate, uh, and so that was that was the spot to to to, to visit him. 
yeah. but now he now he has his grave at New Irish Farm Cemetery, uh, doesn't he? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. There were actually quite, I think, ten or fifteen accounts that we found. I think it, it was uh, Alex that found them for us. Um, that from soldiers that were in the area and that witnessed um, what happened with him. Some said he was shot through the head, others said he was um, uh, riddled by machine gun fire. Uh, but he, was, he, he jumped out of a, a Jack Johnson hole and was immediately hit and fell back into it. And that's where we found him, still sitting on that edge. Um, and apparently, I think two or three counts mentioned that he, he jumped up with his revolver in his hand and said, like, come on, lads, or something like that. And then he was hit. Lucky, are you guys in touch with his family? We're actually not. I'm, I'm, I've kind of, it's on my to-do list. Unfortunately, the Great War Group waded and destroyed your to-do list, didn't they? <laughs> A little bit. I mean, I know, I know they've, they've been quite busy because um, uh, the, I, the Imperial War Museum's um, projects uh, running through mm. the centenary had quite a lot of information on him. So there's been quite a, quite a bit of, sort of contribution uh, about him besides, you know, Simon's work. As well, so you know there there is some interest, and yeah. you know quietly between all the Blackheaths, you know casualties and losses through the war, there's there's quite a lot of the war covered. Mm-hmm. Um, there were also quite of quite some of his letters home that were published on a on a local newspaper in New Zealand. So we have them. So those letters probably are still with the family, and maybe a lot more. We we skyped with his. Um, the son of his father, uh, no, sorry, the son of his father's brother. So he was still alive or is still alive. Um, so he, his father was of way younger than, than, uh, than Captain Walker. Um, but he, he, he recalled his father talking about his lost brother. Um, uh, and he showed a few items. So they must have, he had like an entire album I suppose with photographs, and, and he had a, another case with the initials, the same initials as we found on his um, his binocular case. So I also would like to get in touch and see if, because it's an amazing story. There's a lot about him, like sports-wise, but also in the army. Uh, according to his um, uh, his family, he was a good friend of of uh, Montgomery at the time as well, one of his closest friends. Oh, really. But he was um, wounded during that attack, so he didn't participate on on that fatal day. Um, he also wrote home about uh, Christmas truths and stuff like that. He actually mentions a football yeah. game with a cap. Um, I know it's a <laughs> risky subject to touch, but he, uh, so it, it, it's not Christmas it's pub- yet. It's okay. No, <laughs> it's a published letter, so I would love to see the original, just as like some kind of. A, yeah. I still think the Great War Group needs to make a documentary about you finding him and Lockie following his past and definitely um, yeah. as soon as we can travel again, we'll talk. Definitely. Um, so, Simon, obviously that's a really iconic story. We all know, those of us who know you, know about that dig and what you did as part of it. But are there any others that have really stood out for you as maybe a bit unusual, um, something a bit out of the ordinary, something that you maybe came across that you didn't expect to find? I think the the mass graves that, that we found at Dick Hill 80, 
to German soldiers, that was something extraordinary as well because it's mm. it just uh, we. But it, the total side on itself also because we found 110 bodies on. What's it like though? What's the difference like, like finding one guy? But what's it like when you just keep you dig and you dig and you keep finding more and more? That must be quite emotional. It is, and it makes you realize the the enormity and the scale of, of losses that happens on just small areas and just in sometimes just a few few moments. Um, all those guys were probably killed in just a few days in November 1914 when Bavarian troops took took the village and, and they were uh, pushing the French at that time out of, of the village and then a few counterattacks and they probably lied around there for a few days and they were, as far as we uh, assumed, based on, on archaeological evidence and, and the historical evidence that we have, they were all buried by by other um, units and not by their by, by their own because the chaos and the the enormity of the losses because I think they had six thousand missing still uh, for wow. those few days all the Bavarian division that uh, that took play uh, took part of that battle. And do you find when you are uncovering these these mass graves? I don't know. I've not been involved in anything like this, so I wouldn't say. But I almost imagine. Do you try and picture just well with any exhumation I, I suppose do you try and imagine for the ones you can't identify who they might have been what they might have lived through do you try and piece together some sort of little identity for them uh, each one yeah mm. of course in a small percentage it's just a few pieces and then then that's almost impossible if it's scattered remains or just like a some yeah that you know that was one at one point an entire body but it's partially or almost entirely lost mm. that, that's difficult to to imagine that it that it has been a person uh, although you know it was but it's yeah it's too far uh, too far out to to to, to have a picture yeah. but in all the other cases yeah i always say it's like when you're there it's like you're in a kind of a, a work mode you have that, that focus on all the details that you need to take uh, into account and that you need to record and the, the, that are important. But once uh, you start driving home, you start to think about that emotional part that, um, that you are actually yeah, recovering a, a, a person that's been missing for at least 100 years. Um, and then I... Uh, yeah, sometimes there's no no um, no clue, but if there is a clue or a, just a small piece that you can start in looking into, then yeah, the following days, uh, each night, I will always be yeah trying to find as much as possible with yeah the possibilities I have from here, of course, the online sources and. I know we're going to talk to you about the emotional side of this, um, but I want. So when I went to Auschwitz, right, the one thing that there was one object that really stung me, and I wonder if Lockie and Beth have had this as well. And it was, you know, when you're walking around the museum, randomly it was a cheese grater, um, and it's just in a glass case on its own. But for me, the fact that a woman somewhere, I presume it was a woman, 
decided that she needed to throw her life into a suitcase because she was being herded onto a train and she put that cheese grater in there. And the tragedy is she thought she might have a use for it at some point when we know what was planned for her. That really broke me. Is there anything you've found that you've just really found hard to deal with? It's if you find those personal stuff, that's indeed always much more emotional than, than just the military equipment. Um, of course, uh, it's very uncommon to find them because if they are buried by the, their, um, their comrades, then most of that stuff is taken away to be sent back. So it doesn't always um, happen. And there's not an example coming to me right now. But... In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder Podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Sorry. I suppose one of the things that kind of um, struck me, kind of some of the things that I've, I've heard about kind of being in the minds of, of Great War soldiers um, is the idea that they wouldn't ever want to be lost. Um, so, you know, for, take, take a British soldiers, for example, you know, they, they'd wear a kind of um, identity disc, um, which turned into discs, uh, a couple of, of things. But, you know, these could easily uh, get lost. And so I've heard of, you know, Great War soldiers actually making their own to kind of attach to various parts of them, you know, a, a little kind of tin thing that they've, they've you know, mm-hmm. straight their name or number onto that they then wear around their wrist or ankle or something like that. So, I mean, I guess that's kind of one of the things that makes me kind of just, just click a little different way. The, the fact that, you know, okay, could, could be killed, but absolutely the last thing they want is to be lost. Do you ever find anything along those lines at all? I suppose you'd be able to identify more if you, if you did find those things. Yeah. Well, that's, the problem with those things with uh, identity discs is that, um, especially in the beginning, they didn't uh, realize that um, 
they just had a single one and they had to take them off. So the body was left behind without um, without the disc. So, uh, and then uh, fortunately they realized they had to do the double disc, but then the material is not good enough to, to, to last until now, 100 years later. But we do find um, their, their need to, to, and I don't know if that's their need to, to, to be recovered later and to be, be identified, but luckily some had like their, the need to, um, to own their objects and, and write their initials on it. And that's, that's the kind of stuff that we, we do find. And we always hope and look for uh, when we find personal stuff is uh, we turn them around a hundred and hundred times and look at, in different lights and underwater and clean it again and um, put we even sometimes use baby powder because that if you rub it in you can sometimes see the initials come come out um, you, you try everything because you know most of them uh, mark their own stuff um, but it, only if they realize that it would be useful to to us a hundred years, years later they might have done it a bit more because when you look at um, witness accounts and personal accounts it's indeed one of their biggest fears it's to go missing and, and not not to be found again so with that in mind it must be amazing to get an identification it must be i don't know quite what 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 emotion is that like uh, undescribable <laughs> it's uh, yeah um unfortunately it only happened a few times but um Walker was very special. Um, the other ones were a bit more difficult because uh, two more were found in that German mass grave and they did have that identity disc, uh, German, uh, the early ones. So we knew we would be able to identify because we very clearly could read the, the disc, but those early ones just had a number on it and not a name yet. So we still had to go through... I suppose you, you had to catch yourself a little bit. It's like, yeah. right, I've got to stay professional with this. But, mm -hmm. you know, it's, it's, a, it's a great feeling. It is. And it's sometimes, is, uh, we have to admit, hard to not to be like, be joyful and cheerful, which is contradictory to what you are doing at the moment. Um, but it's just that, yeah, knowing that, that he's no longer uh, an unknown uh, missing soldier, that's, that's yeah, that's what's, Maybe that's one of the biggest reasons why you do or we do what we what we do. So, I mean, I'm I'm going to ask some geeky questions, probably, and, and the kind of technical stuff in a bit. But you know, it, just a, just a final kind of point: is it ever difficult to to balance the kind of emotional with the professional um, when when you're doing what you do? <clears throat> Not when I'm at work in the field, because then I can have can make that click and, and just have that focus. Um, but I do have to admit sometimes um, driving home or searching, um, and especially the closer that you get to, uh, to an identification, that makes it hard. And once you know, um, like for Walker, for example, I, I often talk about him, I each time I have those that like goosebumps and I sometimes welling up thing because yeah, when I, I talk about um, talking to his family and I remember how grateful they were and, and what it meant to them that we found him uh, when we took them to 
because uh, some of them came over to, for the um, for the ceremony and his reburial, and we took them to the location where we found him. Um, and there they just fell onto the ground and started crying. And, and mm. yeah, those moments are, yeah. And then it would be, um, it would be strange, I think, if you're not getting emotional from that as well. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of, I guess I get the same in a, in a slightly more distant way from, from war diaries from time to time, mm. you know, because you end up following some, some guy who's, who's, writing for his battalion and then he ends up getting hit or you know the, I'm, I'm doing the Hindenburg line stuff you have um, a booby trap where uh, the battalion CO 2IC um, the adjutant who writes the diary um, uh, one of the uh, company commanders he, the medical officer and even the um, battalion uh, padre you know the they're all killed in one go and it's like oh you know, and I'm I'm supposed to be objective and proper historian like it must mm -hmm. be yeah. You could argue, I suppose, that if you didn't have that emotion, you wouldn't be able to fully connect to the stories and be under understand their impact, I suppose. I think you need that emotional um you need to have that connection with, with the work that you're doing, whether it be archaeology or whether it be war diaries. Exactly. It's it's you have to be like uh objective and be like professional to a certain level but we're all humans as well and, and learning their stories and getting so close to them because there's almost no way to getting closer to them than actually recovering them from uh from the soil and that that makes them human again as well and and that makes the whole history of of the war about humans which is often just a story, a bigger story, but finding them and finding their objects and what they've been doing and what they've been handling is, is making it all more about them. And yeah. then it would be strange not to have that emotional connection, I think. Are there any kind of jobs where, I don't know, you're called, I mean, you, you, you quite often link to like civil engineering, your work, if there's something going on in Flanders through an area that was once battlefield, chances are, you know, you're going to get a call uh, at some point. Are there any kind of um, jobs that you've done where you've thought beforehand, oh yeah, we are, we are definitely going to find some stuff here or anything, anything maybe that surprised you, any particular kind of periods or places where you thought, yes, we're definitely going to find something or maybe you're expecting to find something and didn't. It always happens that um, you go out with big expectations, but then it turns out that someone uh, was there before you and nobody, people forgot about it. And then all, the expected history is, is just gone and destroyed by uh, earlier construction of farmers or um, like in some areas they, um, they, they dug, up, dug up a lot of clay as well. Um, and that's not always like in the 50s, 60s, it wasn't always written down in books and locations were forgotten. And, and then you start looking at maps and, and, um, and aerial photograph, uh, photog photography and, and you know, Oh, this is a very very interesting spot and then you come up there and you start opening opening up the field and you see that at some point they, they dug big holes to get the clay out of the of the ground but with doing that they destroyed everything uh, that was out of interest for us so but in other cases um 
you go out and you you uh, you find what you expect and even more and then yeah that that's uh, that's the exciting part of the job of course you never know what you're going to get and there's always a surprise coming and uh, we we do the desktop studies we know before we go out um, uh, what to expect more or less based on those aerial photography and um, trench maps we know the, the the major lines that were there the trench lines but um, it was a war that lasted four years and a lot of that happened. And those, of course, they, they tried to mask a lot of things from the observation from the air as well. So there's always a lot more than you, um, that you would have anticipated on based on those sources. So that's made, that's what it, it, it makes it so, um, so exciting and so special that, um, the, the 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 surprise and the and you you just cannot go out with and trying to find what you have on that map. I always go out. I know that it's possible that we find it, but then you go back with the tabula rasa and you just and then you you find what you find and then you try to link it to the maps that you have and to the historical facts and and that's the same when you recover a, a body that you most of the time speaking about commonwealth forces that lucky enough they have the brass uh, shoulder title so they last longer than than the cloth titles that the german soldiers had uh, so it's always like some um, anticipation and, and excitement when you get to the shoulders and, and uh, when you find the cloth and then within it some title and then hopefully it's there and then you can read it and then you you start I can never wait until I get back home. So I will immediately start looking at, okay, that unit, what, what, uh, what do I know here? The divisions that were here, what units were in there, which battalions, and then you can narrow down that list. And then often you looking at equipment, you can narrow it down to like, if they have um, equipment like gas masks, you know, that it's definitely won't be from 1914 and not early 1915, especially if they have the small box respirate, you look, all the way later and then if there are a certain location on the front that also narrows down um, possibilities because you know, uh, and that it's that makes that brings that it narrowed down that major massive list of, of possibilities to hopefully 10 or less or one but of course in the field that never happens and unfortunately in later stages that's also very difficult and then it, you need a very um extensive uh, historical research to to narrow down that list even more if the sources uh, survived uh, the, the 100 years. Uh, there's a the good example is um, um, Private John Lambert that was identified or, um, last year. Um, he was a Newfoundlander. He was also found during the same excavation as, as Captain Walker. So it took about four years, um, four yeah, four years until they they were able to identify him. Okay. Um, so they did a, a very uh, thorough uh, historical research, narrowed down the list, and then they did DNA sampling with uh, some of the possible relatives, and then they they had a match. He must have been killed later. He must have been what August seventeen. Oh, August seventeen. Yeah, he was found right. at uh, Steinbeek, um, yeah. just next to Rizzo Farm um, Signal Farm, that area. Um, and uh, yeah, they had quite some missing 
um, and it was a very difficult case as well because he was buried together with four other soldiers. Uh, I think two from the Hampshire Regiment and one from the Inniskilling Fusiliers. But their remains got mixed up because of later artillery fire. Yeah. So we knew we had four bodies, but we didn't. And one of them division. was a Newfoundlander, but we didn't, yeah. didn't know. So they took samples from four uh, bone uh, or skeletal remains that they knew it was from the four individuals, so probably femurs or something. Um, and then they had to uh, match those four with all the relatives. So it was quite a... Uh, a big uh, undertaking to to get to the point, but with a very satisfactory uh, result, of course. Yeah. And he was also an interesting story because he was only, I think, 17 years old uh, when he was killed. He joined up when he was 16, just a year before, I think almost exactly a year earlier. Um, joined up 16, uh, got train and stuff and I think he he arrived at the front somewhere in June 1917 and then by 16th of August uh, he was already killed. The mentality to join up like that because the Newfoundlanders I mean a a year previous they'd just been smashed on the first day of the Somme and Mm -hmm. you know to to be a 16 year old lad you know off in Newfoundland thinking oh right I'm obviously can't leave it to anyone else. It's, it's up to me to, to, to go out and, and fight the good fight as well. Amazing. Simon, how often do you find one of your own countrymen? Um, I once found one Belgian soldier. <laughs> well, he was... Well, numerically, it's not very high because the population wasn't very high. That's not like a criticism on them being lazy or anything, but there are less to find, aren't there? Definitely, yeah. And according to um, some of the people I, I know that are familiar with the Belgian uh, recoveries after the war, they, they were able to do it quite thoroughly. Um, of course, the, the scale was less, uh, the area that they had to search was less big than, than the um, similar areas around Ypres. Um, does, it, does it make a difference at all? I mean, I... Uh, kind of I associate the Belgian sector with like breastworks built mm-hmm. above the level of the ground rather than actual trenches. I don't know if, you know, the whole of the Belgian sector was like that. Is that more a more difficult job to excavate or do you, do you find less in that sort of circumstance? Trenches are very hard to find in that sector because most of it is on, uh, above ground. Um, so what we do find are those, those burrow ditches that were in front or on the, on the back of the trenches. So we can follow the trench lines, but the actual trench that was in between those ditches uh, is often gone. Um, so that, yeah, it's, it's a completely different kind of excavation in that area. Uh, but I think also there's, because it's very, the Belgian front in that area is going through um, a very agricultural area, whereas there's less develop, development. So there's not that many, only around Dixmarida, there's there've been a few excavations. And then think in the 2016, 17, four Belgian soldiers were found in that area. Three of them were identified, but I wasn't part of the three that were identified. I found another one. He was buried together with some Frenchmen 
Um, so all part of the 1914 battle. And I suppose because they did, um, there were not, not that many uh, missing throughout the war as well. Um, because of um, yeah, less big uh, battles going on in that area. Um, so most of the casualties that we recovered are 1914. And um, I think in 2016, we found them. And it was before that, 1950 or something, that the last uh, Belgian soldier was, was found. I've, I've got... I've got kind of one more question and it's because I'm a child and I'm interested in things that go bang. And that's pretty much what got me into military history. In the hey, first if we place. didn't ask the big bangy thing, <laughs> Peter Hart would never forgive us ever. Yeah. How is, is danger a part of the work that you just accept or do you, are you kind of desensitized to it? I mean, the amount of munitions that you must uncover through your work, I mean, you, 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 you're digging away as carefully as you can. And all of a sudden there's a, uh, a, a 12 inch high explosive round um, or, you know, there's a, maybe a Livens round that might be full of any horrible gas or, or, or anything. What, what do you do in that situation? In most of the cases we are uh, under the guidance of, a, of an EOD expert. Can um, I just say that, the, do you remember, do you still have the Santa Claus guy? The one who, he, did, he just, I'm pretty sure he knew it was safe already, but on that dig in 2013, he just walked up and kicked an artillery shell. And I said, aren't you worried it'll explode? And he went, no, I'm old. I've had loads of wives. I just don't care anymore. <laughs> he's, he retired. Okay. But he didn't get blown up, right? No, no, he's, he survived. Boom, retirement, yeah. <laughs> He retired on the on the normal way. Yeah. <laughs> no, he yeah. For them, they they laugh about it, but they're actually quite serious. Um, I suppose if he kicked it, he knew what he was doing, and it yeah, probably I think he was, was a, just showing off. Yeah, probably was a, or an empty shell or one that that wasn't fired, um, and considered less dangerous because all the mechanisms were not activated yet. Um, but usually we, yeah, we always, on the small recovery um, things that like when we were called out for a chance find, then we don't have EOD. Um, but then we do everything by shovel and hand. If we encounter something that we really do not um, trust, then of course we, we, we let the uh, police, we, we call the police and they, they would call uh, Belgian EOD, uh, Army EOD. Um, yeah, it's you kind of get used to it, but you're not. You don't want to allow yourself to get so used to it that it's it's getting common. You you still have to be, yeah. Each second you have to be aware that it's it can be there and that it's it's still dangerous. But luckily, um, apart from maybe a few um, uh, phosphors that that went off, uh, started to like smoke coming out and then you can cover it and it's it's done and then you let the EOD come in no explosions uh, happened so far gonna walk away this one now. <laughs> um, so simon just want to 
briefly talk about some of the work that you're doing at the moment with your your brand new venture with Skylarks, which is such a an amazing venture to to watch grow. Um, could you just tell us a bit more about what you're doing with with that venture? You know what the whole plan is for what you're doing. It's it's uh, originated from. Um like a subsidy that is granted by the Flemish government. So the Flemish Heritage Agency uh, gives an annual um, amount of money to a certain set of uh, projects. They divide it to different projects each year. And we um, submitted the project last uh, last year, uh, missing at the front. Um, what we want to do is... Um, because it wasn't there yet, um, is make a complete overview of all the recoveries that has been done archaeologically in the past 30 years. So the 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 the, the idea of that subsidy is to to do, uh, give the money to projects that look at archaeology that's done in the past 30 years, because that's the time of the Malta uh, Agreement, which is um, a short explanation when uh, that's for whole, the whole of Europe. Um, if archaeology is uh, to be destroyed by infrastructure, it's the people that uh, are uh, doing the infrastructural works that need to pay and be responsible for the archaeology and just uh, hire an archaeological firm. Um, but very often that information of all those many, many excavations is very splintered and we are now trying to bring that together. So that's what we want to do. Uh, with the Missing at the Front project about the recovery of um, skeletal remains of the First World War. So we will look at how many are found and then we will do, uh, with the database that we are building, do a, an analysis on uh, how many nationalities, uh, where are they found, what kind of uh, graves are there, just field graves or uh, more of them just buried in shell holes or in, in, uh, in trenches. Uh, is there an evolution going uh, through the war? Like if there's, um, if you archaeologically can um, find out if, if like they took less or more care for the death in the beginning or the end of the war uh, and that kind of stuff. And then with the, some historical sources, we will also have a look at the, um, the landscape uh, of the missing, which means that we will try to pinpoint all the locations over many as possible of where soldiers were killed and try to uh, find out if that tells us something historically as well. Uh, looking at battles, if some areas are uh, heavily fought over, what's the cost for that area, um, which is already giving us very interesting insights and results. Um, we, for example, look at if you have a name that you know uh, is buried, um, where was his body recovered from? Uh, if he was killed according to his sources at the front, but you find out that he was recovered on the route back to the front or on the other side of the front because he was recovered by the enemy uh, and then eventually died there. That's all that kind of stuff that we're trying to put in in uh, uh, numbers and, and historical uh, evidence. And that eventually will end up in, 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 a, in a report and in... Um, uh, an exhibition in the Flanders Fields Museum. So uh, that will open in uh, on the end of January next year. Um, so that's something we look forward to a lot. And for that, uh, we are still um, building uh, the story. So we will not only do uh, all the more hard 
facts and, and numbers, but we also want to uh, find like the real stories. Of course, we have the stories that we've, a few we've been talking about today, but stories about people, what it means to people that still have uh, relatives missing or yeah. people that are still looking for relatives. So um, you want to hear from people, don't you? Yeah, definitely. Um, the more stories we get in, the more um, we can build a, a nice exhibition around that. So just be a call out to uh, people that want to share a story. Uh, yeah. Hit Skylarks up on Twitter or the Great War Group because we're working with them. Uh, speaking of which, Simon, this has been amazing. Uh, people are just going to be, once again, mesmerised by you. You're going to have to get used to being a, a war war celebrity, I'm afraid. Where can people hear more from you? Um, they can follow me on my uh, Twitter handle, which is just at Simon Vertigan. Uh, I try to now and then um, share some of the, the work we are doing. Um, and of course, also at, at Skylarks, um, our, our Twitter account, but also on our website, which is brand new. And we are planning to share stories on there as well when the project is uh, continuing and growing. Um, so I think those are the two major uh, things. And from there on, you can uh, just catch up with what we are doing. Excellent. And might you be talking at an event later this year? I will share some <laughs> of the results uh, on the conference in Maidenhead, the Great War Group conference in October. Uh, so I'm really looking forward to that because that will be the first uh, location where uh, we will share what we are been doing the past couple of months with the Missing at the Front project. We're very excited to hear about it. Simon, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure and then thank you. You can help us at History Hack by joining us via Patreon. It takes quite a lot of effort and a lot of work of quite a big team now to keep us going. And so if you could donate as little as £3 a month, it would be massively appreciated by all of us. There's different levels because Princess Marcus has set it all up with uh, varying rewards and things. So do have a look. Do join us. There's uh, an exclusive Facebook group as well and you could be part of all of it. When our guests join us to talk about their work and their new book, the 45 minutes or so they spend with us is just a taster of all their efforts. So to this end, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org, where you can find our guests' latest and greatest books. You can support them and you can support History Hack too. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep at it and bring you more amazing guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash hack history or just search on bookshop.org for us under the shops bit. Thank you for your continued support and here's to your next great book. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.